Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, okay. part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk with Stuart Beck about Canada, Asia, and the Indo-Pacific. Stuart Beck has served as the president and CEO of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada since 2014, a position he has served with style and distinction and a job he will retire from next month. Prior to joining the Asia Pacific Foundation, Stuart served as Canada's High Commissioner to India with concurrent accreditation to Bhutan and to Nepal. Stuart's foreign service career also included assignments in the United States, Taiwan and China, and his later postings included service as our Consul General in Shanghai and Consul General in San Francisco, where he's responsible for Silicon Valley. He held a series of senior positions in Ottawa, including Director General of the North Asia Bureau and Assistant Deputy Minister for International Business Development, Investment and Innovation. Stuart is one of our Asia hands and I should tell listeners, he's also a very good friend of mine. Stuart, welcome back to Global Exchange. And again, I salute you for your leadership of the Asia Pacific Foundation. Oh, you're too kind, Colin. It's been a it's been a real pleasure for me to do this for the last seven years. Uh, I can't think of a better job after leaving the department. Well, you've done excellent work, which complements the, the work of the department that we both served and, and still have great regard for. And, and uh, I'm one of the many beneficiaries of what you produced, both in terms of scholarship conferences and your weekly three minutes bulletin, which is terrific. So again, I salute you and your team because they've done great works. So let me start off with a kind of big overall question. After four decades of service and assignments in the Asia Pacific region, what would you put as your kind of top two or three takeaways about Canada and the region? Well, I think you know the top takeaway is that we haven't really focused on the region, despite the fact that the foundation was created in the mid eighties uh, with the purpose of bringing more focus to the region. Uh, it's always been kind of a stop and start uh, exercise and I, you know, you particularly feel this when you work in the department, uh, Colin, because you know we we have been very Eurocentric and very U.S. centric. U.S. obviously because it's so important to us as a trading partner, but our history and roots come from uh, from Europe, and we haven't really understood the importance of Asia uh, like many other countries. And, and I think that's the first uh, key and critical takeaway. Uh, it, it's always been difficult, and I, I, I say this from the from being a former member of the department in terms of allocating resources. And with the great movement of the ec economic center of gravity to Asia, I'm not 100% sure the department has, has had uh, the ability uh, to kind of move the resources necessary uh, to capitalize on, on the opportunity that, that's there. So that's the second takeaway. And I don't think it's necessarily the department's fault. It's, it's the nature of bureaucracy in general uh, in, in, in the have the speed to adapt to the reality of what's happening. And I think that's one of the things from a third takeaway is, you know, it, change has happened so quickly in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, how do we adapt to that? And a lot of that change is actually happening in Canada, uh, Colin. You know, we have developed a tremendous um, technology ecosystem. And again, have we been able to uh, catch up with that from a standards perspective, a bureaucratic perspective, to be able to capitalize on that opportunity in markets where the, that technology is really important. So I'd say that's the third thing. And then the geopolitical reality uh, is, you know, 
first and foremost, has, has changed so much. Uh, the rise of China has had such an incredible impact, particularly in the last 15 years. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate, fortunate enough to see it, uh, you know, really from, uh, from a front row seat in, you know, in my time in China and Taiwan. Uh, again, we, we are just coming to grips with that. And again, we have a bit of a colonial construct in terms of our thinking. Uh, and we need to be able to get beyond that to take a look at what Asia means, what the culture means, and the ability to build that Asia competence that, that we, we will have to have to, to be successful going forward. So those would be the four key things that I would, uh, that I would underline over the, over the period of time and 40 years working in the department and, uh, and with the Asia Pacific Foundation. Um, all astute observations. And, uh, you know, I recall, uh, in fact, it was one of your uh, APF sessions where I think one of your guests, a scholar who uh, was from Singapore, said that Canada had slumped from second to third league. You used the kind of football analogy because of what you identified in your first point, sort of inconsistency and lack of strategic focus, which, um, you know, certainly I, th I think sounded more and more like fair comment and I, it, uh, my sense is you would you would probably agree with that oh no absolutely uh you know colin i am um, you know what it's like being assigned as a head of mission you have to get um, agreement and then of course you have to present your credentials and uh, when i um when i went to india in 2010 we had gone through a pretty unhappy patch it happens you know and and so you you know, I got there, I got my agrimon, but I got to India and it took me four, almost five months to present my credentials. So I had lots of time to think about the bilateral relationship between um, India and Canada. And I really came to the conclusion, um, you know, that we were at the bottom of the second tier of importance to India. And, and let's face it, we had been at the top at one point in time in our history after, after India's um, independence, uh, in um, you know the early 50s, the relationship between the two prime ministers was extremely good, uh, and in many ways, Canada was a model for India from a constitutional perspective. And if you take a, if you read the Indian Constitution, you know, other than other than they use states and we use provinces, there's a lot of similarities between how they're organized and we're organized. And you know, so we had this this great relationship that went up until the time that we, you know, we sold. Uh, India uranium and of course we sold them the the, uh, the research reactor from which they produced the uh, the material for their first uh, nuclear explosion and that after that that set us back a, a long way and we never really recovered and, and, and what I realized is that for India you know Canada can can provide certain um, important features for them or not features but supply certain critical commodity commodities like such as energy such as food and yet we weren't really in the same league and of importance as Australia for example and I could never really understand that so coming out of uh, that six month of kind of waiting around to to present credentials and talk to people you know I formulated an approach that said where can we be important to India and if we can be important to India then we're going to bump ourselves up at least to the top of the second tier because the first tier is hard to break because it's really the p5 the the permanent members of the Security Council and the and, and the neighboring states to India. So, you know, again, focusing on the key things that are important to India, food security is, is critical. Uh, energy security and coming up with some sort of energy relationship with India was, was fundamental. Infrastructure is critical to India's growth and, and development. And it's not so much about building it because we did it during the days we had that we had an aid program, you know, you know with uh, CETA money, we built dams and 
that that's that's important. But what's really important to India was money and financing, and you know, getting our Canadian pension plans to invest heavily in um, in India was you know really a, a, an objective. And quite frankly, they've they've done quite a bit of that uh, to date. And then the final thing was technology, and I think we bring a, a Canadian technology model to India, and you're seeing the re, you know the results of our relationships in that particular area. So that's how you kind of bump yourself. You know, you have to make yourself relevant, and you have to have a strategic approach to it. Stuart, it sounds to me that you you know we put all this big emphasis on a closer economic partnership with India, um, but it hasn't gone anywhere. But it strikes me your approach, which is to find what India wants from us, and also serves us mutually maybe we shouldn't get distracted from the fact that we don't have this closer economic partnership that we've always achieved, because in a sense, we're doing what we need to do in a more practical and profitable fashion for both countries by following that approach you've taken, which was to say, here's what, here's what we have that India wants that also serves our interests. And as you listed through, you know, technology and food and energy, and, and, and I guess learning would be a piece of it as well, because of the and, and of course, we do have such close ties because of the people-to-people uh, -people relationship, the flow of, of migrants that come from India to Canada every year. Again, it's, it, it goes back to having a strategic approach. And you talked about education, Colin, and that's so true. And in the context of India, when I arrived in 2010, we were doing 3,000 student permits a year. Um, and you know, we were competing with Australia uh, you know, for the for high high quality Indian students, uh, United States and the UK, uh, circumstances helped us. Uh, the, the Australia had some issues and problems that uh, that concerned Indians and you know Indian parents in particular, and uh, that helped us from one perspective. Um, and of course, UK and, and the US also have created an opportunity for Canada. But you know, the problem that we were it wasn't a problem. I mean, it's, that's not the the point I'm trying to make here, but. 80% of the students that were coming to Canada were going to vocational institutions, which is fantastic. But what, you know, we should be trying to attract, in my mind, we should have been trying to attract, you know, university uh, level students, because as you know, there are just so many very bright uh, Indian students. And, and so we, we, we took a strategic approach. How do we get, how do we change that, that percentage from 80, 20 to something like 60, 40? And that was the goal. But not only did we, um, kind of approach it that way and having good people to go out and, and market Canada and, um, uh, you know, that, you know, having that type of approach with good people, a strategy, and you take a look at uh, where we are with India right now, it's our largest source country for, uh, uh, for university students and, um, and the student program in general. So again, if you, if you approach it and you have a, have a systematic uh, you know, and kind of implementable strategy, then I think you can see the types of rewards that you're looking for. No, and as you say, India is now our, our major source. They've eclipsed China, which we'll, we'll get into in a moment. But I've got to ask you a, a question that successive Indian high commissioners would consistently raise with me, and that was their uh, concern that Canada was playing diaspora politics. And I hadn't appreciated it as much until the, Mr. Trudeau's more recent uh, trip where you know it, it loomed up again with uh, Prime Minister Modi. What is that? Is, 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 are, the, is, is, are the Indian critique of us, because they feel we're soft on what they regard as a kind of existential challenge and several of them compared, said to me, look, we, you take your national unity very seriously, so do we. And, uh, 
going back to your analogy about similarities and constitutions and, and challenges, is, is that, was that a fair comment by some of the high commissioners? No, I think that's a very fair comment. Uh, and I can honestly, you know, from the experience that I had uh, in India and having uh, ministers visit, and of course the prime minister visited and, and, and the governor general uh, visited while I was there. Uh, and every time we had a minister visit and certainly with the prime minister as well, the first words out of the uh, their counterparts' mouth was, you know, you have a problem with Khalistani separatism in Canada. And, you know, we go, you know, the obvious answer is no, we don't. Um, they point to, you know, slogans that, uh, that appear in uh, the states and what you see in, um, in Gurdwaras, uh, you know, in terms of, and, and it's true, you, you have pictures of, of uh, you know signs in a in a gurdwara that would say free Khalistan. Um and you know the 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 response would be is we don't have a problem uh, and the second thing is you know there's freedom of speech in Canada people can uh, peacefully demonstrate and if they have these concerns then they want to raise them that's their their right to do so. Um, but uh, you know it's it's pretty hard to say that it doesn't happen and one of the things that um, you know that we would talk about. Uh, with with the ministers at the time is that you know whether or not it happens uh, the issue is it's the symbolic gestures that um, like we would we would be concerned about they're concerned about in India so if there's a minister um, attending a Vasaki parade and there are signs and placards in the Vasaki parade in Punjabi that say a free Khalistan pictures are taken of the um, of the parliamentarian or the minister or whatever the case may be. And of course they end up in newspapers and you know it gives the impression that there's support for something like this. And so you're constantly kind of dealing with the Indian side saying it's not there, don't worry about it, it's not an issue. And you know, you as a as a senior official or as a high commissioner, um, you say to your your political counterparts, you know, what you need to do is just be careful. Don't go to good wires where there are signs, make sure somebody that that that's part of your delegation can read what's going on, make sure you don't have pictures taken just to protect the symbolic uh, aspects of what's, what's happening. So uh, yes, there is, there is this diaspora politics. It's important, you know, uh, particularly in, in key writings uh, in urban areas, such as Vancouver and Toronto, uh, the, 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 you know, good wars are great, you know, great places to rally people and they get the support that you're looking for. Now, on the conservative side, there's tremendous support for, uh, from the Gujarati community uh, for the conservatives, and so they have their own agenda as well. So again, you know, you have to understand you know, Canada is a multicultural country, and you're going to have these um, diasporas, which is interesting. In one country like India, you have multiple diasporas. It's not just uh, you know the Punjabis. You have the Punjabis, the Gujaratis, the Tamils, and you have uh, Keralites. So they all have different agendas. It's a big country with the, in many different regions with many different approaches to, to life. So um, you know, these are things that you have to consider, but it's not just, you know, uh, uh, in the context of Asia, it's not just an India issue. It's, you know, you take a look at greater China, you have the Taiwanese diaspora in Canada, you have the Hong Kong diaspora, mainland Chinese diaspora, and they all have different agendas. And so again, my hope is, and, you know, we've written about this and I think you've read, uh, Colin that, you know, in the context of our, our foreign, our, in the context of our strategy for Asia, we need to be able to form our own strategic approach and not be influenced too heavily by, by the diasporas because it can get you in a real conflict. And, and if anything, it just means you don't create the strategy that you really need. So that's, 
you know, there is a lot to be said about what my, my predecessors were talking about. Um, well, actually, I was speaking not so much of your predecessors uh, as the Indian High Commissioners here in Canada oh, who okay. consistently raised this with me, uh, that this was something that, but, but thank you for that explanation. Before I leave India, um, Modi, Hindu nationalism, uh, a liberal democracy, is this something we should be concerned about? But on the other hand, you know, and we'll get into China soon, but given great power politics and things, India is still a democracy. Uh, and, and like all democracies, everyone has, we just have to look to our Southern neighbor that there are challenges that go with it. But how seriously should we take what's taking place under Modi in terms of Hindu nationalism in India? Well, I mean, I, it, it should be no surprise. I mean, quite frankly, you know, his uh, relationship with the RSS, uh, which is the, you know, for those who don't know, RSS is the Hindu Nationalist Party, um, has been quite strong over the years. Uh, they have, you know, pretty, pretty clear, clearly stated platform, and um, and yeah, I think we should be concerned. Uh, it, it's been um, a backslide. I, I think, you know. It, Modi was elected on an economic agenda, and it was one that, you know, most people supported without question, because, uh, you know, there was a lot of, there is a lot of potential in India, and it's how do you realize that potential, and Modi was really quite focused on that to begin with. But a lot of the, uh, what I would say, the nationalistic um, Hindu nationalism agenda is beginning to emerge, uh, started really right from the time he was elected, uh, and it's really becoming more, um, uh, inculcated in the in how the the uh, uh the country is being run it's the hindu nationalism is one issue but it's also some of the the, the backsliding on democracy you know how journalists are being treated um uh, you know basically consolidation of power in a more of an autocratic way these are, are concerning elements of what's happening and and it, you know we're not the only ones who've noticed it it's it's obviously the uh you know, the various um bellwethers on democracy have have you know the ratings on india have has slid in the last year in particular so uh yeah it's a concern and i think it's something that will come to people's attention i think we're there you know most people are being distracted by what's happening with china and it's obviously that what's happening there is not is not good and it's um, and you know but you know, china is china china hasn't changed since uh, the communist power uh, communist party has come into power it's a little bit different with India because the expectation is it's a it's a full democracy and and when you see things changing that that impact that you get concerned. So what 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 should and could we do? Because as we just discussed, we've got a very large both Indian diaspora living in Canada. We also have, uh, as you point out, they're now our major source of students. We have and should have a keen interest in supporting. India as a democracy, but how do you do that without, in a sense, sounding uh, imperial? Well, so, yeah. Again, and quite frankly, Colin, it's the same thing that we should that we are doing, and we should be doing um, with China, which is to say that you you have your your approach to uh, society and your your set of values. We have ours. We're not telling you ours are necessarily better, but ours have a you know, you know, these are fundamental to how we would like to operate, and we think this is better in the context of human rights and uh, uh, and and a globally accepted approach to human rights, and and that is, I think, 
the way we should be approaching it. We should be taking a look at international standards and, and asking people to adhere to those standards. We're not basically, we shouldn't go into a country and say, our value system is better than your value system. So we'd like you to emulate what we do and we won't deal with you unless you do that. That, that doesn't get you very far. And in fact, it, it kind of puts you on the sidelines. What's much, much better is to say, these are an international, international set of norms and standards. And we adhere to those and we expect we would expect you to adhere to those. And if and when you're not, we're going to call you out. And I think that is, is the way to, to approach it. It's not about where we think ours are better than yours and you should follow and, and, and copy what we do. Uh, because it's not, again, having lived in both China and India, it, it just doesn't resonate, Colin. I mean, it, they, people just look at you and say, well, why are you telling, trying to tell us what to do? And, you know, quite frankly, we've been around a lot longer than you have. And, you know, we've survived thousands of years of different types of problems and issues. So, you know, it, it, I, I, one thing I've learned over the over the 20 some odd years that I've worked in Asia is that you have to be very humble uh, uh, when you uh, go into issues. Yes, we should be taking a strong stand on what we think is important in the context of international approaches to human rights and international standards in that in that area. And we expect people to adhere to those. But at the same time, we can't go in and say, look, you know, our, our system and country and our democracy is better than yours. So you should try and copy what we do. It's just, it just doesn't resonate. Um, well, well um, let me now shift to China, where you also spent a good deal of your career. Uh, and as I pointed out, you were our consul general in uh, Shanghai. Um, so, you know, the China relationship, and, and it's one that uh, both you and Jeff, uh, we did a podcast about a year ago, which we'll make reference to in the uh, in the note program notes for this episode, which I will encourage listeners to go back and, and hear again, but you, you, you put a fair bit of work at the Asia Pacific Foundation on the China relationship. Um, and a lot of it does come down to uh, values, but we also have interests. So uh, where are you today on the kind of, and you spoke to this right at the outset with your sort of four top points, but specifically on China, you know, we're in the, we're in the, the, the ice box right now. Um, how do we get out of there? Or are we just kind of doomed to be there because of this particular difference as we on values? Well, you know, I, I always like to lead with this, Colin. And, you know, I, I often think of the two Michaels. And to me, what was done there was just unconscionable. And it's something that, you know, you know China can do something like that because it has power and the strength and the, the ability to do it. Should we have been surprised by what they did? Probably not. I mean, that doesn't, you know, the way they approach these types of issues is pretty systematic and it's understood. But I mean, quite frankly, you know, taking two people hostage because of a situation that, you know, we're complying to an international, uh, you know, very legal relationship that we have with the United States, that we have the extradition treaty and we, we should be respecting that uh, to the T. So uh, again, you know, I, we think about my, uh, the two Michaels often and, and it's something that's important from our perspective. But in, when it comes to interest and values, uh, again, I go back to the, you know, to that, to that point is, you know, our values are our values and we should be very clear that this is what's important to us. Um, but we should also be clear that we, the expectation is that, that our counterpart in this case, China, um, adhere to the same set of uh, international standards that that have been set you know by the UN and other organizations and that they may that they belong to so uh, again we need to approach it from that perspective when it comes to interest and values again this is something um, you know Canadians take very uh, dearly and um, you know we did a recent poll and it's very clear that 
Canadians will, again, it, it's, it's easy to say it, okay? And sometimes it's harder to do when it impacts your pocketbook, but it's clear that, you know, values in, in many ways trumps interests. And um, it's easy to say that, but if in fact it does impact your, 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 your own financial interests, then you, you might change your mind. And, and this is where it's a delicate balance and, you know, where the government uh, and you know, our old department has to have to think very clearly about how we can promote the agenda, which is important to Canadians around values, but at the same time, maintain the economic benefits from dealing with the second largest economy in the world. That's only going to grow. It's only going to build its, its technology capabilities. You know, some of it in a, in a very uh, sensitive way and in, in, around security issues and the such like, but a lot of it in, in, in uh, a commercial way that has tremendous implications for Canada, the importance of, you know, climate change and health and a variety of other uh, sectoral interests that we have. These are all interests that are, that are important to us and we need to be able to understand how we balance, you know, things that we don't like uh, about the party in particular. I mean, it, unfortunately what's happening is beginning to translate into a larger audience. But when I'm, what, you know, let's keep, let's be clear that when we're talking about China, we talk about the party and the, and the party is different than the people. You, you mean the Chinese and communist party? Chinese communist party yeah. is, you know, they will, they are running the country and they're running it in the way that they want to run it. But that doesn't translate into the rest of, uh, you know, the Chinese population in the country. Let's keep in mind that, you know, there's 1.2, 1.3 billion people in China and there's 93 million, if I'm not mistaken, members of the party. So, you know, you're looking at less than 10% of the population are, are members of the party. So what, what's happened is this angst and concern about what the party is doing is beginning to translate into a broader base against all Chinese, which is really unfortunate. And you know, this is one thing at the foundation we're very, very strongly supportive of you know any measures to reduce this anti-Asia sentiment that's beginning to emerge in the country. Um, and that's again a function of a variety of things. But one of the areas that we're focusing on at the foundation is how do we build the education, educational understanding of Asia? How do we build our Asia competence so that you don't you don't wrap everything into one thing and you end up with you know, um, you know, an approach to a group of people because you don't like what's, what the actual um, political system is in the country. And that's, I think, uh, one of the things that we have to consider as well in, our, in the context of our strategy and how we build our approach to China is, you know, in a way that keeps our values, so, you know, where we want them to be, which are, will, you know, would be very hard for us to, you know, to compromise on that because they're so important to us. And on the other side, you know, we do need to understand that you know, China is not going to go away. It's a huge market with a tremendous amount of opportunity, and we have to pick and choose how we go about doing that. Do you think we have, I mean, you've put forward some good ideas on a strategy. My sense is the government's been working at coming up with something over a year and a half, and we're sort of falling into a, a more recently of starting to act now in tandem with some of the allies on Hong Kong, on Xinjiang, on human rights abuses in, in China, acting in concert with the United States, the Five Eyes, Europe, Britain. Is that, is that probably the way we, we, are, we are moving? We're not leading on policy, but we, we seem to be at least uh, now part of a, of a bigger group uh, as it relates to China. Well, I mean, it, it's always um, good to do these things with company. <laughs> it's hard to be out there on your own. Uh, and so again, my only, um, my only fear, and, and I, I've mentioned this to you know to yourself, to you, and in our, in our conversation to others, is that 
it's really important for us to kind of pick and choose how we go about doing this um, because we want to maintain our, our own sovereign approach uh, to a strategy with, with China. And at some point, at, you know, with some, on some issues and, and in some ways, we want to be aligned with the United States and uh, the UK and Europe. Uh, but in some cases, we have to think about what's, what's more important from an interest perspective, maintaining our values, but from an interest perspective and in dealing with China. And that is, again, goes back to that delicate balance. And I can understand why it's difficult for the department uh, or for the government to come up with a China strategy at this point in time, because we are essentially, um, you know, given the circumstance that we have with the two Michaels and Madame Meng, we're put into a, into a really difficult situation. Uh, and it's hard for us to lead. Uh, it's, it's much more, much easier for us to, to, to choose those areas which make the most sense for us to support. And I think, um, quite frankly, I think the government has done a good job over the last uh, six months. I think people would, would want us to be much more anti-China in our, in our, um, in our approach to, uh, you know, to, to the country. But uh, I, I think, you know, it's, at this point in time, it's better to, to kind of manage issues on, a, on an issue by issue basis than come out with, a, with an approach that, is, that sets you either in one camp or another camp. I mean, we're strongly, obviously, we're strongly in the Western camp that we are a democracy. We want to approach things from a democratic perspective, but we need to understand that we are in a unique situation given our, our current problems that we have with China. And it's better for us to be, be to pick and choose and, and do what makes the most sense. No, and it's, it seems to me also as the Biden administration is moving to come up with a, a kind of China strategy as, a, as the European Union, because there have been shifts certainly in both places that uh, as you point out, manage it as we are doing, but let's wait and see where our, our principal allies come out on this one. Well, let's face it, you know, the approach that was taken by Donald Trump in general around foreign policy and relationships and allies was, you know, really upset, certainly upset us, you know, it, you know, slapping terrorists on aluminum and steel for national security reasons doesn't make an awful lot of sense when it's the, one of your strong, strongest allies and and largest trading partner, uh, you know. So there's lots of things at the time, you know, during the Trump administration that set, you know, the allies you know, back on their heels and said, "What's going on?" On China, um, you know, the Trump approach has really, perhaps, it's a little bit more sophisticated. The language is a little bit different, but it's equally as hard uh, as uh, the Trump approach with China. And so, for Canada, we, we need to take that into consideration because. You know, we're you know understanding how both how that relationship is 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 coming together between China and the United States, and how that impacts us is is as important as coming up with a, a China relation a China strategy on its own. So that you have to factor the United States into whatever whatever we do going forward on China because it's going to be quite critical, and they're going to be leading and pushing us or want us to go and want other allies to go in a certain direction on China, and maybe in some of those cases we don't want to go completely in that direction. Because you have to remember, and this you know, applies also to not just China, but to India, there is a colonial hangover um, and how, you know, how China responds to certain things is a result of that history and you can't ignore it. And that is one of the challenges, again, in the context of building Asian competence is understanding the colonial impact on the region. And that cuts across whether it's uh, Indonesia and, and its history with the Dutch is India and its history with China, you know, uh, his, not history with China, but history with the UK. And the same thing is true with China. Um, you know, 
that colonial backdrop is something that we always have to consider and the responses that, that these countries take tend to have some of that history built into it. Now you've spent you know, the last years running the Asia Pacific Foundation, which is designed to both uh, produce the kind of uh, think tank work that policymakers can draw from, but also act as a bit of a catalyst for us to move from. And you've, you've, you've pointed out that we, one thing we really do have to do is improve our Asian competence. Um, it strikes me that we have real opportunities there because again, thanks to our migration policy that really since 1980, half the migrants to Canada have come from Asia and significant number from both China and India, that we have this capacity. Are we making best use of the natural assets we have thanks to, uh, I think what is relatively enlightened immigration policy and I would include in that education with students? Well, there's two things that, I, that, that you mentioned there that I, I just like to highlight. One is uh, making Canada an international talent hub and that's paid off, I think, extremely well for us in the last 10 years. And you're seeing that in the technology ecosystems that we've been developing. And, and as, yes, it's about uh, Asia, but it's, you know, it's, it's tracking talent from across, around the world into that particular sector. And so I, I think that immigration approach has been really quite sensible. Uh, on the second thing, when it comes to Asia competence, um, yeah, we absolutely need to, you know, to capitalize on the diaspora, but it goes back to the problem that we talked about before. And you know, it, if there was kind of a common a common thread through the diasporas, then it would be a lot easier to do, uh, but there isn't, unfortunately, that common thread. Um, so I tended to take, a, would like to take a, a knowledge uh, hub approach to the concept of the diasporas. And a lot of that is, you know, the, the relationships, particularly at the academic level between um, people who come from India to study here and stay here and the relationships that they have back in their country, how can we capitalize on that knowledge network, which is, uh, which is really part of the country. And I had a conversation with the U15, you know, the, the, the presidents of the 15 Canadian university, the biggest Canadian universities about this concept of building a knowledge hub. Uh, and I'll give you an example. One of the projects that we've been um, working on in, at the foundation is, is, and with the digital supercluster here is how do we build a precision agriculture exchange of data um, project that will, again, bring some of the technologies that we have here in Canada into an environment where there's a huge amount of data and using that data to perfect, um, you know, the algorithms to improve efficiency, uh, again, from a clean technology perspective, uh, improve the environment. And our counterpart is a professor um, and, and Mr. Modi's uh, lead on, on AI. And, um, he is, you know, he's at IIT Madras and he had eight of his PhD students, eight of his PhD students are now teaching in Canada. And here's just one example of a knowledge network that if we could, if we could build that across, um, you know, a number of different universities to say, okay, how do we use this to our advantage and building out, uh, not just in a context of India, but in China and other parts of Asia where, where this knowledge network would work. And um, that, I think that's an important uh, important thing to think about. The, the second thing on, on that, Colin, is although we have all this immigration coming from Asia over the last uh, 20, 30 years, the reality is that hasn't translated into the high school curriculums across the, the country or even in, in uh, any sort of social study or history curriculum through the, through the elementary school system. So one of the key projects and, and one of the ones that I'm really most proud about over the time that I've been here is 
we built a, a, an Asia curriculum with the Ministry of Education in uh, you know, the, the province of British Columbia, which is now a set of modules, which is now in the, the um, six through 12 uh, educational system here where social studies uh, teachers can use this to bring Asia to their classes and give it, you know, give an understanding. And, you know, you think BC would be the one that's probably most aware of Asia, but the reality is if you take a look at um, the Teachers Federation and those teaching the social studies curriculum, most of them are Caucasian and they're teaching students in their class that, you know, tend to be, you know, I won't say the majority are, are Asian or have Asian roots, but a, a good number of them. And so there's some concern about teaching it. So a lot of the, the money that we put in building the, the modules and building the programming has been around training the teachers to make them more, more comfortable with teaching a curriculum which they hadn't been exposed to themselves. So again, it has to start at a young age. This is a long-term way that we build our long-term uh, approach to building Asia confidence. And our hope is that we can take this, these modules across the country and they can be used in other uh, K through 12 um, provincial educational systems. But you are making progress. You should point out British Columbia is, and it certainly makes sense because I think it, it's also a reflection of the reality of Canada today and also it helps to differentiate us from our neighbor to the south because you know well we have much in common and they are our friend and neighbor we are different and that also when we're not seen That's as different true. then certainly i as i find dealing with china who, who who in many ways decided we're simply just a tributary of the united states um in part because of some of the reasons you've enunciated You've spent a lot of your career on the in the trade commissioner service. You were one of our chief trade commissioners. And of course, technology has always been a big piece of this. You were a consul general in uh, San Francisco responsible for Silicon Valley. And I know at the Asia Pacific Foundation, you put emphasis on this. You talked about AI. Uh, are, are, we, we have competence here, but are we taking full advantage of it? And is this something that really does have to be partnership with universities and government and provinces. How do we, how do we get this? I know this is a problem you've thought a lot about. Well, I think, you know, we, the, the current government had made a decision to, you know, and it's a tough decision to do, to, to focus on, um, you know, key and key critical sectors and they made investments in that. So the super, you know, I'm a very strong supporter of the super cluster strategy because it brings both private sector, public sector, and, and academia together to build a critical mass around key uh, key technologies where we have potential leadership or you know current leadership, and you know so the supercluster strategy I think is a very strong domestic approach to building innovation, and it's very um, it's been very in my mind it's been successful particularly from the digital supercluster you know having been living here in Vancouver and, and sitting on the board of the digital supercluster, I see some of the benefits of that. And that's one of the reasons why we've been involved in this project in India. But the problem, it's not a problem. It's the next stage is how do we internationalize um, the work that we're doing on the superclusters to, to, because there's Canada is only so big and for companies to be successful and for technologies to grow, you need scale. And a lot of what we're doing in the supercluster strategy is built around data. And we're a country of 35 million people. So that's about the size of 
kind of Shanghai and Suzhou, which is a very small part of China. So it's, it, you know, you can imagine how much data that we have here and we need more data to be able to scale the companies that we, that we are building out of this. And they're, they cut across enormous number of sectors, whether it's agriculture, healthcare, whether it's in the telecommunications space, the cybersecurity space. I mean, it, it, it's, it has a, you know, a really interesting impact. And quite frankly, uh, when you talk to our Asian friends and they see what's happening in Canada on the innovation side and looking at what the super clusters are doing, it's very good for our brand. And it's something that they see and say, hey, Canada's doing this very, very well. So again, it's a question of how we take what we're doing well and then internationalize that in a way that makes sense for us. Uh, again, protecting our IP, which is always going to be quite critical, but also building the types of collaborations which will allow us access to larger markets and more uh, more ability to scale the companies that we have. So we have it in front of us. And the question is, how do we take it to the next level? So that is, you know, again, I kind of push on that on that rope an awful lot. Um, I think there's some resonance. It's just a question of, it's like everything else, we're in a, an election cycle and we'll see where things go. But my hope is that let's take something that we're doing well and then think about how we can take it into the international marketplace, uh, international collaboration space, and then build that and build the companies that we have coming out of it. Do you see companies in Canada that are doing what you're suggesting? I mean, I think of companies like Shopify, which have got take data, do something well in the marketing front. They may not have been where we started, but they have done well. Are there others that you're you're seeing as part of your work in super clusters that you'd say, look, these are could be potential models for others in that super cluster field? Absolutely. I mean, we have so many companies that and if you take a look at the number of companies that at some point in time, just go on the Digital Super Clubster website, you, there's five of them and they all have this, a similar type of makeup. And the number of companies that are involved in that, I, I'm always amazed, okay? Uh, and I can't quote you the number, but I, at one point there was 300 and something that were involved in the Digital Super Cluster and their projects. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, you know, the opportunity for companies to grow and to compete internationally uh, is really, um, remarkable. Now, again, I, I always say this, the first market you should be looking at is the one next door, because that's the easiest one to get into. But it doesn't mean you can't go into international marketplaces in Asia in particular with, with something that people are looking for and saying, hey, okay, um, you, there's a tremendous opportunity here and we should be trying to, to do that, but do it wisely and with the, with the tools and resources at your disposal, such as the Trade Commissioner Service and uh, you know, Export Development Canada and the toolkit that the government has at the uh, that Canadian companies can utilize. You've spent much of your career promoting Canada, particularly in the trade front. Do we have the right trade strategy? Uh, I know you've looked at this in various aspects and, and you've, you've gone into much more nuance in this in terms of super clusters and technology. And, and then it was one of your uh, points as you start off. Um, any, any recommendations as for the next government in terms of if they're looking at trade strategy? given your vast experience and particularly given the growth areas where you spend in Asia, as well as your time in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I, again, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's really important to, to play to our strengths. And I think right now, and, and I'm, look, I'm, to be honest with you, Colin, I have to take a look at my patch right now. I can't talk about other markets, but you know, Asia is the one I'm most familiar with. And I think it, it really is building a strategy around those, those areas that we can actually um, you know, we can support, you know, from a government perspective, the commodity markets, uh, you know, you have 
uh, an international system that's in place, you know, grain, you know, all the, whether it's the trading system, the trading houses, it's global, you know, prices are set globally. But when it comes to working with companies that, um, that can be supported by the network, it, it's really taking a strategic approach to those areas where we have leadership. A lot of that's in digital innovation today and how you build a strategy around that. It can be all things to all people, but it, it really, again, it takes focus to be successful. And once you get one thing going, you can move to the next. So, you know, I often say it's, it's bring focus, bring focus, bring focus, right? So it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. I, I look at ASEAN, for example, and that's one area where you know, there's tremendous opportunity there. You've got uh, countries that are in ASEAN that are growing remarkably quickly, whether it's Vietnam or Indonesia, you have Singapore, that's a hub. But we've done, you know, we haven't done enough with ASEAN. And I think, again, the, the government is really approaching ASEAN in a good way. And whoever wins the next election, I hope they maintain that energy uh, around ASEAN because it's, it's a market of 650 million people. It's, it, it's diverse and different, of course, and not all, you know, you don't want to go to all those markets, but certainly Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, even the Philippines, was, which is growing rapidly. And we have tremendous connectivity to the Philippines for our diaspora. So these are all things that are, that are important for us to, uh, to consider. All right, my last question for you is, what are you reading and streaming these days, Stuart? Uh, the one that I'm, the book I just finished and I recommend for those interested in, in sort of globalization and the impact of a group of people on, on the world is the, the book is called The World for Sale. Uh, and it's about, you know, global traders, the Glenn Coors, Extratas, uh, Archer Daniels, Midland, you know, uh, Cargill, you know, these and the impact that they've had, uh, you know, really since the 70s. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's remarkable and how much money uh, as a group of people they've made. But more importantly, the geopolitical impact that they've had, because they would go out and take the risks that other people wouldn't take. Uh, not, again, this isn't something that, um, you know, you walk away from the book and say, I admire these people and what it does, what it's had. You know, if you're interested in the geopolitical world, it's an interesting book to read. Okay, the world for sale. Anything on the streaming front? Oh gosh, I you know I'm I'm watching right now, uh, rewatching Fauda, because okay. I know so little about the Middle East, but I, I find that to be a fascinating, um, a fascinating uh, Netflix uh, Netflix. Uh, All right, well it certainly scores high. Well, thank you so much, Stuart, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Stuart Beck, the Chief Executive Officer of the Asia Pacific Foundation. And you can find a link to some of the work that the Asia Pacific Foundation has done on the podcast website. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.